FX Medicine is evolving. As we continue to grow, it's important to us that we remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert you want to hear from, let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Instagram. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Yvonne Coleman, who's worked as a dietitian for more than two decades in aged care, initially in the public health sector and more recently as founding principal of Nutrition Consultants Australia, a consultancy that specialises in nutrition for the elderly. Yvonne's broad experience extends to being a chief dietitian with development and supervisory roles in the public health system, state government enteral nutrition working party involvement, community radio appearances, and presenting research at both national and international conferences on a range of nutritionally related topics. She has published several books in the area of elderly nutrition, particularly relating to drug nutrient interactions. And that's what we'll be discussing on FX Medicine today. Welcome Yvonne Coleman, how are you? Wonderful, thanks Andrew, and thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Now, I can't remember how I first found your folder. I do not remember it, but it's become integral in making sure that we're taking care of patients. We'll delve into that in a second, but I first want to delve a little bit into your career and how you settled on your interest, your avid interest of drug-nutrient interactions. Where did this all start? In the 80s and 90s, I would go to conferences and they would say, and of course, um, you know, they would be talking about um, malnutrition or compromised nutritional health and, of course, drug-nutrient interactions and move on to the next dot point. And no one ever expanded that dot point. No one ever gave examples. This is, you know, at the top conferences. And I got curious. And then in the early 90s, I was working in um, aged care and rehab, and I had people on my books who had who were prescribed 20 different drugs, and they had poorly controlled diabetes. And I started to ask, what was the impact of those drugs on their nutritional health? And with diabetes, I was particularly curious about chromium. Right. And I couldn't find any literature. Just It was just impossible to find anything beyond um, drug-nutrient interactions as a dot point at a conference presentation. Mm. It was really difficult finding examples such as, and certainly not anything that I could use as a clinician. Mm. And then I stumbled across a, a paper and they had examples. So that became the basis of it. And I said to my staff, right, we're going to integrate this into our clinical practice. And of course, the first question was, how do we take this information and present it? Which was also 
we trialled different ways and we came up with a table format that seemed to work best for us. Mm. And in that table format, we'd have... We, had, we actually had what I call drug nut labels drawn up and you would write in the drug name, the nutrients affected, and then tick off the key side effects like nausea, vomiting, constipation, yes. diarrhea, changes to appetite, weight, taste. And I always included drooling because drooling doesn't happen very often, but when it does, dehydration is such a profound issue and impact on blood sugars. You know and what? I'd never even contemplated that. Impact on blood sugar. Drooling, yeah. Or drooling, yeah. Yeah. And some of that came out because um, I was also really quite interested in tube feeding. In the 90s, tube feeding was really quite predominant mm. in elderly people. And um, in the young people, drooling can be a major issue and they can be losing litres a day pouring over their lower gum, down their chin. Yeah. And um, I, it was more about how do you manage the redness on the chin because of the um, salivary enzymes mm. impacting on the skin. So it was a sideways interest, and I thought oh, drilling is really important. When it's there, it's really important. Mm. So I integrated it into, into that check sheet as well. Never even it, contemplated it, it and its effect or its um, impact on a fluid balance chart. Never yeah. even thought about it. No. Yeah. And they lose litres a day. Yeah. You mm. said something about chromium, though, just first. Is one of these real issues with regards to why nutrients aren't mentioned, is one of the main issues because they, they're hard to measure? Yes, and the hard to measure is for a couple of reasons. The first reason is... Nutrients like chromium are right on the edge of measurability with our current technology. Mm. Or when I was looking at it in the 90s, it was right on the edge of being able to be measured. And people didn't think of chromium as a nutrient. They thought of it as a toxin. Yeah. And think of that film starring yeah. Julia Roberts. Um, yep. Uh, Leon uh, Brockovich. Ellen Brockovich. Yep. yep. Uh, so the the chromium in that was the toxic form, which is six plus, but there is also a biological form, which is three plus. Mm. But it was it's right on the edge of being measured, and that's the problem with things like chromium and selenium and some of the other things we just don't hear about. Yeah. And the other issue is pathology lab ranges, and the pathology lab ranges don't always reflect research findings. And really classic examples of that would be vitamin D12 and vitamin D. And so so when you look at the research, what are the path ranges? What ranges are they actually using to draw their conclusions? Mm. And last year there was a fantastic neuroimaging study that has found there is change to brain structure and function once once B12 levels drop below 300 picomoles per litre. Well, the past ranges in Australia are around 220, around that 220 still, yeah. somewhere at 240. A lot of the research, and because I've been looking at metformin and B12, a lot of the global research is looking at 150 as the cutoff point at the deficiency 
and up to 220 for that mild deficiency or, you know, borderline deficient. Mm. So so what we would term as adequate is actually showing neurological degeneration. Is already causing harm. Yeah. And then years ago, they decided that diabetic neuropathy was not due to inadequate B12. Well, of course, the ranges were so low, people would have been so low, that they wouldn't have been able to differentiate. So now, some of this cutting-edge stuff I've been reading with regard to neurodegeneration in general is starting to turn around and say, you know, there's a lot of commonality between diabetic neuropathy and B12 deficiency, and maybe we need to revisit this. Mm. And the other classic one is vitamin D. And the research was, the past labs up until two or three years ago, the vitamin D levels were edging up with a lower cutoff point of 75 picomoles per litre. And then some man in New Zealand went and did a meta-analysis and just chose 50 picomoles per litre as the lower cutoff point. So the PATH labs couldn't get their their ranges down to that range quickly enough. It was really hard getting them to get it up, but they could drop them very quickly. This is picomoles on... This is nanomoles, yeah? Nanomoles Mm -hmm. in vitamin D? No, N-moles. N-moles, sorry. So now all the research is starting to say, and there was a fantastic meta-analysis that came out earlier this year, and it said, you know, for bone health purposes, having a lower acceptable limit of 50 or 75 nanomoles per litre is fine for bone health purposes. But if you're looking at the non-bone health implications of vitamin D, then um, a low vitamin D contribution to bowel cancer is um, 137 nanomoles per litre. So you've got to get your vitamin D levels up above 137 nanomoles per litre to reduce the vitamin D impact on bowel cancer. And if you want to take the low vitamin D contribution to diabetes out of the equation, you've got to get it up over 160. Well, I don't see very many people with vitamin D levels up over 160. And in fact, the medical profession gets a bit excited and says, oh, you better drop your vitamin D intake. Yeah, crazy. When it gets up there. So there's just no understanding. The PATH labs are nowhere near where the research is going Mm -hmm. and consistently getting these findings. I was speaking with um, Professor Hollick, Michael Hollick, some years ago, who was speaking about um, an African forgive me, I'm going to say Kenyan, uh, tribesman, uh, but he was measuring things up around the mid-200s. There was paranoia, I would say, in Australia regarding this J-curve that too much was as bad as too little. And so they were worried about where this J-curve was going because at that stage, people were getting quite heroic with dosages. I think it was Jenny Gunton at uh, Westmead Hospital was giving deficient um, forgive me if I have this wrong again, um, diabetics or pre-diabetics, um, she's giving them four to 5,000 IU in pregnancy. And it's, it's just really interesting how much vitamin D is needed to increase the serum level once you have a low level because your body has these elegant protective mechanisms to basically destroy too much vitamin D. You have to way um, go over the, the 
upper limit of normal to actually massively um, affect the, the serum levels of vitamin D. But of course, the safe level is from sun, sensible sun exposure. Well, the other thing is once you've turned pink, you don't produce any more vitamin D anyway. Yeah. It all shuts down. That's so right. So the body's built in a safe, fail-safe mechanism there. But in the, if you, um, in the 50s and 60s, sunbaking was such a standard part of the Australian life. Mm. And you look at all the diseases we didn't have in the way we have now. Yeah. You can look at mental health stuff and you can look at skin cancers and you can look at a whole range of things because once the vitamin D is too low, then, of course, there's increased risk of getting skin cancer yeah. as well. Yes, that's and right. And, of course, one of the other things is when the body levels are low, the body's tapping into, it, tapping into its storage and so you're depleting your storage levels as well and so the body's desperate, also desperately trying to top up the stores. You mentioned earlier about nothing less than polypharmacy with that personal multiple medications. Indeed, I've run into the same experience where one lady was on 26 medicines per day. Uh, by the end of February, in beginning of March, she was on the free list in Australia. So forgive other countries. In Australia, once you've reached 52 scripts, you the government subsidises it after that, particularly for pensioners. And I... I couldn't handle this ethically. I worked in a pharmacy at the, at the time I was doing deliveries to this lady's home. I referred her to a, um, a physician or got her referred to a physician and this lovely man put her into hospital and she came out on four medicines. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> well, congratulations. I will say this man to Dr. Quinn. Um, he was brilliant. But um, what an issue of polypharmacy, nothing more than lazy medicine, but worse off, it was causing more and more compounding and compounding nutritional interactions. Oh, and, I have some favourites. <laughs> well, this is indeed where your work has led you, isn't it? Yes, it has. So I have, I have a group, a class of drugs I absolutely hate, <laughs> and that's the proton pump inhibitors or the acid inhibitors in general and the proton pump inhibitors in particular. Yeah. Because they reduce gastric acidity, and I don't know why, and I'm talking about the elderly here, why a, a cohort or a, a population group that are already producing gas, less gastric acidity because of the aging process are then given acid inhibitors. Because it's a symptom so relief. Even, <laughs> so there's even less um, acid there to digest the food. Yeah. And... Um, and of course, then things like all the nutrients are not being converted to the absorbable form. And so this, I, I suspect there's this ongoing malnutrition that no one is monitoring, but it is known that proton pump inhibitors impact on B12 status, vitamin C, magnesium, zinc, iron, and indirectly through magnesium on thiamine. Mm, mm. Oh, and, and then we worry about their mental health, their, their dementia, deterioration. Well, they don't associate that with the proton pump inhibitors. One of the big things with the proton pump inhibitors is very small protein um, peptide chains can be absorbed where there's two or three amino acids. And this is because there's not complete digestion, these small peptides are being absorbed and it's leading to, to a potential anaphylaxis, a, a, an allergy at the same uh, level as right. peanut allergy, which can result in anaphylaxis. Now, yeah. when we start getting anaphylaxis in nursing homes, 
No one is going to turn around and say, it's because they've been taking a proton pump inhibitor for more than five years. Yeah. They're going to say, I wonder what environmental, as in physical environment, not yeah. drug environment, environmental impact caused this. So they're just not going to point the finger at um, proton pump inhibitors. But then, of course, the proton pump inhibitors are quite often prescribed with metformin being a diabetes agent, anti-diabetes mm. agent. And metformin has been known since the 1960s that it drops B12. And the literature has been consistent through all those decades. Metformin drops B12. And it's still not part of the clinical recommendations to monitor B12 on a regular basis. Why? Well, Why is this ignored? I don't get it. No, me either. <laughs> So, so then, you, so you've got your proton pump inhibitor and your metformin, and the research is now saying when you put proton pump inhibitor together with metformin, there is an additive impact on B12 levels. So that's one of my favourites, and the other one is it's people on a proton pump inhibitor. They're probably prescribed fruzamide. Fruzamide is a diuretic, and it increases the loss of magnesium. Proton pump inhibitors decrease the absorption of magnesium. So I call that the daily double. And I actually write in my report, currently prescribed the daily double. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, of course, there's the trifecta. And the trifecta is your proton pump inhibitor plus fruzamide plus digoxin. And both fruzamide and digoxin increase urinary loss of magnesium. Mm. And it's the people on the trifecta who are more likely to end up in intensive care and they may or may not come out. Mm. And it was through um, in the intensive care department, the case studies, and it was an Australian team that led this that started writing the case studies on proton pump inhibitors dropping magnesium levels. Now, it's interesting you say that with regards to magnesium and, and DIG because the very old study, the limit one or studies, limit one, limit two, um, they used magnesium in an emergency situation to rescue people who with an AMI or acute coronary um, syndrome, mm. uh, ACS. Uh, they rescued people in an emergency situation, whereas then the ISIS-4 trial came along and killed people. And not just that, but they said, oh, yeah, by the way, magnesium doesn't work. But what they did is they gave it wrong. Um, they gave it incorrectly. So it was given, I think it was too much of a bolus dose, too late and too little frequency, um, too infrequent, whereas the they other, could have rescued them. <laughs> yeah. The other thing with magnesium is, again, we come back to Pathlight lab ranges, and I've seen some past labs with a cutoff at 0 0.7 um, units, mm. and I've seen some with cutoffs at 0 0.6. And I came across a paper earlier this year that's saying we should be using 0 0.8, and I can't remember the units, uh, as the lower acceptable limit for people on magnesium. Right. That's but a, that hasn't that we, hasn't quite percolated through to past labs or doctors. No, but that's quite a difference when you think of two, uh, you know, uh, what are we talking about, 12, 15 odd percent? Mm. Yeah. Well, well, if you're working on 60, it's 30 percent. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, so I guess where we go from here is what you've developed. And this, I, I just find it invaluable, these drug nut charts, particularly when people are on multiple medications, but also to flag something that might be of interest when you've got a symptom presenting. So can you take us through 
you know, you, you've taken us through why you developed it, but can you take us through how they work? Okay, thank you for the lovely compliment. <laughs> when I designed, developed the, it's now it used to be drug nutrient interactions, the manual, and then in a fit of um, insanity, I changed the name to medications and nutrition, a quick reference for busy clinicians. The title is more relevant, but lots of people were so used to it being called drug nutrient interactions that I think I lost a few people at that point. <laughs> but I developed it. For clinicians, yeah. I am a clinician, yep. and I wanted quick, easy access to the information. And as a clinician, I actually um, have less concern as to whether the information is a case study or a um, huge trial. And a lot of this stuff, there won't be huge trials because there's no one with a vested interest no. in conducting huge trials. Mm. So a lot of the research is small study stuff. But I wanted something that when I was looking at all these people on all these drugs, what were the nutrients I had to be concerned about and what was their commonality? So, And as I said, I've got the daily double and the trifecta and a few others that I comment on and so that I can create an awareness. So every, I just put everything in. I've thought, oh, I better identify which are case studies and which are... Um, I don't put in animal studies unless it's really, really profoundly shocking. Mm. Um, but I, I put in pretty much everything else. I reference absolutely every entry so people can go back to the research and draw their own conclusions. But I wanted a place, a one-stop place, where people could go and get good quality research or what is being published in the research in one place. Mm. And so so that was the basis of it. And I looked at, do the drugs impact on blood sugars? Do they impact on thyroid? Do they impact on um, cholesterol levels? And then I looked at drug-food interactions. So good old grapefruit comes up. But apinolol and apple juice is another one or... Apple juice? Be, yes. Um, and it's through the transporters in the gut. Right. There's a, an interaction between the transporters in the gut, between a penolol and uh-uh. apple juice. Um, and looking at things like licorice and, yep. you know, there's a whole, um, caffeine. And caffeine, if you take <laughs> a lot of people when they have a headache, they take two paracetamol with a cup of tea or coffee and have a good lie down. Well, of course dietary levels of caffeine, as in the amount of caffeine in a cup of tea or coffee, reduces the pain management effect of paracetamol. So in a lot of cases, it's probably the good lie down that's doing the best, conferring the most benefit. (laughs) Now, I've got a question that, because I thought that caffeine was used as a transporter for paracetamol. I thought that was the new kid on the block. They've got different amino acids. And they're using caffeine to assist in the um, use of, tra- of paracetamol. Not the case. Don't know about that. Ah. High-dose ca- caffeine intake, as in really high-dose caffeine yeah. intake, is actually associated with enhancing the pain management effect of the drugs that it's been coupled Gnosis. with. And yeah, now a whole, lot of, a whole lot of pain management drugs are in combination with caffeine. Ah, that's so it. it's that high-dose caffeine ah, right. that 
enhances the pain pain management effect. But dietary levels, we just we're, we're talking about the daily intake of cup of tea, cups of tea and coffee. Yeah. Um, that actually reduces paracetamol effect. Wow. So it's going to be a nociceptive effect. Yeah. So I looked at drug food stuff and then I looked at drug nutrient interactions. So what impact are the drugs having on these nutrients? What impact are the nutrients having on these drugs? So we've already talked about proton pump inhibitors reducing magnesium absorption and fruzamide increasing magnesium loss. But if you administer iron with levers with thyroxine, it reduces the availability of both the iron and the thyroxine. So, you know, if someone's feeling tired or they think, oh, I'm probably a bit low in iron, so they toddle down to the supermarket and they buy their iron tabs and everyone takes their tabs at the same time, yes. typically after breakfast. So down goes the liver, the um, thyroxine and down goes the, um, and of course the other one is levodopa, and down, goes the, down go the drugs and down go the iron all at the same time, and of course their their, um, control for their thyroid or their um, Parkinson's deteriorates, and of course the response is, oh, well, you have a disorder, or no one, no one, absolutely no one asks, have you made any changes? Have you started to take any vitamin or mineral tabs? It's a really important question, isn't it? It's a really Change. important question. <laughs> and then, of course, the person still feels tired and they forget to take, they stop taking their iron or they've run it out and they've decided it's not making any difference. And then, if, and by this time, the doctor's fiddled with the drug doses to try and improve, um, to stabilize the condition. And, of course, all of a sudden, once the iron has stopped, then they become over medicated. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so profoundly important to ask the question. Have you started to take any over-the-counter tabs? Then I also decided people with swallowing problems ought to be included because administering drugs to people with impaired swallow reflex is a real problem and it mm-hmm. can change the drug dynamics. So people then mix a whole lot of drugs up together and give them with a range of different foods, um, ice cream, custard, yogurt, um, applesauce, whatever's in the fridge that's in a liquidy form and they mix it all up. And, of course, each of those foodstuffs changes the dynamic of the drugs once they hit the the um, stomach for digestion. It's really important for anyone with an impaired swallow reflex who's mixing their drugs into a foodstuff to improve their ability to swallow it, yeah. that they use the same foodstuff all the time. Ah, uh, of course. And of course, the one, um, quite a few years ago, there was some research looking into this in South Australia, and they found plain yogurt was the best. A lot of people don't like plain yogurt. Mm, mm. So a lot of people use an apple sauce. And provided they use that same food stuff every day, then the dose intake is stabilised. Then I looked at people on tube feeds and I thought, oh, well, you know, changing the drug and popping it down that tube. Um, so I looked at drug administration in relation to tube feeds. And that's a really um, um, under-researched area because 
in reading some of the research articles, it's actually not clear whether they pop the drug into the bag of formula to administer, which is a big, 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 big no-no. Mm. And therefore, what is the time frame between stopping the tube feed, having a gap, administering the drug, having a gap before starting the tube feed again? Um, so with warfarin, the rain time frames can be anywhere between one and three hours. You know, you stop your feed three hours before you give your warfarin and then you start your feed three hours after you've given the drug. Mm. Well, that's six to eight hours out of, you know, maybe 15 hours. And so you wonder why they're nine hours gone, Burko. Well, if they don't comply, then it's really hard to get the feed down, mm. especially mm. if you give it slowly. So I put all that stuff in. And then for a long time, I've been putting in the ingredients wrapped around the drug. So, um, and of course, ingredients in drugs have a different name. They're called excipients. Um, and so I was looking at gluten and lactose and galactose and the colours and flavours and alcohol and... Um, Gelatin. Yes. Whether, and I was looking at medical, philosophical cultural, religious demands. So did they contain pork? Did they contain beef? Um, and, of course, gelatin tabs, caps are a big issue for vegetarians. So I was putting all that in, but um, over the years I've realised that some of these drugs change owners like other people change their underwear, so I'm taking all that out. <laughs> it's too hard to keep up with. Does the changing of any of these excipients or tableting aids change the pharmacodynamics of the tablet yes, of the medication. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I was just reading about this this week, and one of the, an example of that is magnesium aspartate. Magnesium aspartate is quite, I think it's aspartate. It's stearate. Magne- magnesium stearate yeah. is actually quite often an excipient or an ingredient packed around um, the drugs. And I was reading this week that there's an interaction between the active drug and the magnesium Stearate. So if you suddenly have companies making it without, um, making that drug available without the magnesium stearate, you're going to have a very different effect from companies making it available with the magnesium stearate. Yeah. And it was really interesting because in the nutritional supplement industry, there was a ste- there was a one camp, if you like, that said, oh, this stuff's really bad and we shouldn't be using it and things like that. And yet I, I seem to recall a study, uh, I think it was a, a tenolol, where it actually improved the absorption. Yeah. So when, when the, um, as I understand it, when the patents come out on these drugs, you know, they really have to balance administration in relation to food and food in the pharmacy industry is only ever to um, modify side effects. It's Mm. not for any other reason. Mm. So can they administer the drug on an empty tummy, which enhances absorption, or must they administer it with food to minimize side effects? Yeah. And so they go through that whole process and they, but when the drugs come off patent, those same excipients are not necessarily wrapped around that drug. And therefore, the drug with the copycat um, manufacturers will has an increased risk of reacting slightly differently. Yeah. And, we, you know, I think this is really interesting. There was a, um, a young pharmacist who then went on to do medicine, but her one of her assignments was basically around the absorption and indeed the area of the curve of drugs. Now, given that this was decades ago, um, mm. so this may have may not be correct. 
Um, but what they found is that there was, it wasn't the area under the curve that was the issue. It was the shape of the area under the curve. So for instance, we would commonly get people that would prefer a generic or prefer the trade name drug, the original drug. Um, and it's because it worked better for them. Yeah. And that may be because of placebo. Absolutely. But it also might be because that person got a better effect from that drug, depending on the shape of that curve. And which could have been influenced by the excipients. Excipients, food, whole lot. Yeah. So those are the different headings that I put into the, um, into the manual. And I, I have a, I have a number of journals, like about 50 or 60 coming across my desk every week. I get the email table of contents and um, file off everything of interest and, and then I toddle off and pull as many references as, as I can and then I sit down and I have to read them and this year's little effort came up to my knee. <laughs> They're not all in. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I do love your work, but I have to ask, do you find that this issue of polypharmacy, do you mainly find that your work impacts on elderly patients or do you find younger and younger people taking more and more medications and having in, um, nutritional impacts on this? I work in the aged care so I don't I can't answer um, beyond that but certainly the staff I work with um, come from a lot of different walks of life and as we're talking about the children I'm hearing more and more about children who are taking especially proton pump inhibitors yeah from a very young age, and it looks like those kids aren't going to come off those drugs. Wow. So, um, and if you think, um, drugs that could be prescribed whole of life would be the anti-epileptics and insulin. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people can get diagnosed, with, uh, and maybe even these days, some of the antipsychotics, and I'm talking about kids like two and three and four, mm. right through to being... 70 and 80, they could be on those drugs all that time. Yep. So some of these drugs can be whole-of-life drugs. Yvonne, I love the way that you target each year. You target a class of drugs and you get all of the information that's pertinent for drug-nutrient interactions to help clinicians in managing these in their patients. And I want to give our listeners the resources so that they can grab a hold of these to use them in their clinic. So I've always known of nutritionconsultantsaustralia.com.au. That's where I used to get like the, you know, the favourite 50 and the big folder. I used to get the big folder. Now, I understand yep. that's moving online. Is that right? Everything is now online and people haven't been interested in having the favourite 50 online. They've just been subscribing to the main database. And um, and the database is $99 a year for, for a year's subscription. Yep which is um, a fairly um, very good value, I think. Oh, I think. <laughs> yes. um, so people can go online. Once I get My big log, log jam has been websites and the way to go forward, whether I have one big one or separate ones. So now that I've decided to go down the path of separate ones, I'll be getting the database rebuilt and it'll have a whole lot more functions built into it so people can download a whole lot of stuff and print off reports that they can then send to the GPs or give to their patients or or can keep for themselves. So will that have the drug nut chart that I've used? Yeah, there will be variations on the drug nut chart. So okay. people will have... 
each page, people can click on and choose a drug, yeah. say Fruzamide or the brand, and um, that will be a bit like MIMS, you know, it's a drug to a page or yep. to a web page. And then we're hoping to be able to drop download some of the stuff into the labels, into a label-type concept so that you can see which nutrients are being affected and the common side effects and put in the key points out, copy out the key points from the um, information that can be integrated into um, any report that wants to be sent off. Great. So these are nutritionconsultantsaustralia.com.au is the existing site. And in the future, there will be, there will be drugsandnutrition.com.au. And I understand .com as well for our overseas listeners. Is that right? That's correct. Fantastic. Yes. One last question, Yvonne, before we go, and that is, will you be having international names of drugs as well as the, obviously we're based in Australia, but will you be referencing things like acetaminophen versus paracetamol? Australia is moving over to the, the international terminology. There so fruzamide will become furosemide. And I'll be moving across to that as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. i got to say, like, I have found this invaluable, particularly when people are on multiple drugs. But as you say, even when there's serious side effects from the chronic use of a medication with regards to one nutrient, like, for instance, you, know, you mentioned metformin and B12 and also the, um, the PPIs, I, I can't thank you enough for your service and the help that you've given me in caring for patients particularly, as I say, multiple meds. It's been an invaluable resource. I hope people really latch onto this um, and and use it for, you know, helping their patients. Andrew, thank you so much for those lovely compliments. <laughs> and it's really heartwarming hearing it, um, that people do benefit from it, because I quite often hit my head against um, GP resistance. Yes. The thing is, um, um, if you look at the anti-epileptics, people have looked at people with diabetes and they said, oh, yes, a subset of them go and get epilepsy. And Ooh. I think they're looking at that the wrong way around. A lot of the anti-epileptic drugs interfere with biotin absorption and it's competitive inhibition. So if you, there's a lot more of the drug around so, and they share the same transporters. And so it just knocks biotin out of the way. And biotin is really important in energy metabolism. Um, so I think the question being asked should be, do people prescribed long-term anti-epileptics get diabetes? And I think that's the... Uh, because that's where the mechanism is. Yeah. There isn't a logical mechanism going from diabetes to epilepsy, but there is from epilepsy to diabetes. Yvonne, thanks for joining us on FX Medicine. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.